Last week, Jesus had this controversy with the religious leaders, with Pharisees, um, over uncleanness, and particularly unclean hands. Disciples did not wash their hands. And what that meant as far as the oral traditions, the tradition of the elders in Mark chapter 7. And again, I don't want to have to rehash all that, so go back and uh, listen to that message. And kind of the big takeaway from last week <clears throat> was following God is about what's on the inside and not what's on the outside, right? And so following God is a heart matter and that things come out of the heart and flow out of the heart and that our tendency in life and particularly in religion is to have an external and outside in focus <clears throat> when Jesus says the key to following God is an inside out approach. So following this controversy, this confrontation that Jesus had uh, with the religious leader, he embarks on this kind of long and winding journey through the Gentile regions that we read about this morning. So Jesus leaves Galilee and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom primarily to Jews, and he goes through this kind of Gentile mission. And three cities are mentioned here, um, Tyre, Sidon, and the Decapolis. Decapolis is an area. It actually means ten cities. Um, you can see D-E-C-A, Deca is a decade, that's 10 years. The Decapolis, the word polis in uh, the Roman and Greek world was a city, so 10 cities. And so he goes through this Gentile region, again, proclaiming the message of the kingdom. <clears throat> There's a few hints in the text here that suggest that Jesus is leaving Galilee for a couple of reasons. One, uh, the harassment of the, of the Pharisees. Uh, possibly a second reason, if we were to go back in the text a little bit, is the Roman Tetrarch ruler um, Herod has just had John the Baptizer um, killed. And so there's a lot of kind of buzz around all of that. They're looking for a revolutionary. They think Jesus is going to be the guy to, to lead that. But that's not the mission of Jesus. And so he leaves this area of Galilee and he heads into this predominantly Gentile territory. And in the text we read this morning that Deja read, Mark records two encounters in this Gentile mission that continue to shape our understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to be a part of His kingdom. So let's look at these two episodes. Uh, we'll kind of break them down individually and then bring them together in the end. So let's jump back to uh, verse 24 of Mark chapter 7. And from there, Jesus, He arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. Now, this city, Tyre, has a long history of animosity toward the Jewish people with Israel. Uh, as a matter of fact, if, you're, if this is kind of Old Testament, if you know about the Old Testament, this name will ring a bell. Uh, this area of Tyre is where Jezebel was from. The home of Jezebel. I don't know if they had like those, those road signs when you enter a city back in that day that's like, this is whatever home of such and such person. Now, would that be a good one? This is Tyre, home of Jezebel, right? Um, so I'm not sure that's what's going on, but this is that area. There's this long-standing animosity toward Israel from this area. As a matter of fact, the first century historian Josephus said that they were notoriously our bitterest enemy is what he called the people that lived in Tyre. And Tyre just represented the most extreme form of, in the Jewish mind, paganism that they would ever encounter. And Jesus goes there. And he goes there intentionally. 
And, and let me just pause to say it would be inconceivable in the Jewish mind for the Messiah to show up in a place like Tyre. And Jesus goes there intentionally because He's a different kind of king. He is a different kind of king that has come for a different purpose. The text says Jesus enters this house to get away, but the crowd would not allow Him to. As a matter of fact, kind of the uh, more accurate translation here is that He could not escape notice. In other words, he could not get away from anyone. And so verse 25, immediately he's attracted. Verse 25, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. This word immediately again is a trigger word in Mark's gospel. Uh, his whole gospel is about urgency. And so he uses this word immediately over and over and over throughout the gospel. We see it again here. And in this case, we're introduced to a desperate mom. And the mom is desperate because of parent pain. Okay? So if you're a parent, you identify here. There's no pain for a parent like parent pain. Meaning, something's wrong with one of your children. Anybody ever been in that situation? Right? They're struggling with something. They're hurt. They're wounded. They're going through something in life. Parent pain. Now, I'm not talking about the myth that... Um, for those of you that are kind of old school parenting and spank your children, um, the, the myth that we would often say to our kids before we did that, this is going to hurt me worse than it hurts you. No, it doesn't. As the child, it doesn't, right? Um, I kind of get this. My mom's here. I tease my mom. There's one time, she's, I mean, my mom was a tiny lady, right? So by the time I was like nine years old, her spankings had no effect. It was just like, what are you doing back there? So mom got this brilliant idea one time. She'll show us what that means. This hurts me worse than it hurts you. And so she had my brother Dale and I spank her instead. I'm tired of spanking you guys. You guys are going to know how it feels, so you're going to spank me. So I'm like, with the paddle, I'm like, why are you abusing me like this? So I kind of understood in that moment the pain issue. But we're talking parent pain here, a desperate mom uh, with a child who is, in this case, possessed by an unclean spirit. Uh, when Kaylee, my oldest child, was um, very small, uh, she was born uh, with a, um, an issue that they needed to do a reconstructive surgery on her uh, within her six months of existence. Uh, a little bit what um, uh, Chad Sreyer with baby Grady are looking at in the next window of time. Um, Kaylee was less than six months and she had to go through this surgery and they had to go in and put her to sleep and put IVs in her little bitty veins and they couldn't find one in her arm. So they were like trying to put it in her head. And I'm like, I can't not watch this, right? As a parent, I had to walk. And I remember the night she was going to have the surgery the next morning early. I just sat in her room and I, in the hospital room and I held her all night in the chair. I wouldn't lay her down in the crib because uh, my heart hurt, right? That's parent pain. And some of you identify with that. You have that even with grown children in your life. Uh, but this is a desperate mom. A desperate mom with parent pain. She has a daughter possessed by an unclean spirit. It's not the first time we've seen unclean spirit in Mark's Gospel. There's this constant clash. Uh, when Jesus arrives, there's a clash of kingdoms, of spiritual kingdoms, between the light and the darkness. And the light always wins, uh, but there's this constant clash. And we see it here again. And this desperate mom falls down at the feet of Jesus. This is a sign of humility and desperation that she falls at His feet, begging Him, right, uh, to come to the aid of um, her daughter. Verse 26, Mark gives us a list of obstacles in this lady's life. This woman was a Gentile, 
a Syrophoenician by birth, she begged him to cast the, the, the demon out of her daughter. So a number of obstacles here for this lady. One, she's a Gentile, all right, not Jewish. Two, she's a woman, and in this culture, this patriarchal-driven culture, uh, for a woman to approach a Jewish rabbi was un unheard of. And so she's a woman approaching a Jewish rabbi. She's a pagan, a Syrophoenician. So this is, again, from an area that was known to be anti-Israel, anti-Jew in every way. She was considered radically and racially unclean to approach Jesus. She has a demon-possessed daughter. There's a lot of obstacles working here. She has no spiritual resume. She has none of the right credentials. But she is desperate. Now, as we kind of watch the story of Jesus unfold here, it seems like she's in a good position for Jesus to help her. We've watched Jesus show compassion and help people who have no spiritual resume time and time again, right? He's gone to all the wrong people. He's helped all the wrong people. He's gone to the unclean, the lepers. I mean, this seems like a formula for the type of person that we've watched Jesus help time and time again. It's a good place to be with Jesus is a place of desperation. And so it's kind of a head-scratcher when we read verse 27, how Jesus responds to her. He said to her, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, what's going on here? Is Jesus being rude? Like, this has to rank as one of Jesus' most offensive responses in all the Scripture, right? And he does it to a desperate mom who's just asking for help uh, for her daughter. As a matter of fact, Matthew 15, which gives us the, this, the same story with a few more details, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus ignores her. He ignores her for a while, and the disciples are like, send this woman away, she's annoying. That's what's going on here. And when Jesus does respond, it appears that he is saying, I have what you need, I have the bread, but it's not fitting for me to give to a dog was intended for children. Like, is Jesus calling her a dog? I'm not talking about like D-A-W-G, like, what's up, dog? It's like, no. Dogs in that culture were considered unclean. They were scavengers. They weren't like we do with dogs today, dress them up in little costumes, and Ash and I were on vacation at the beach, and I saw this lady with a stroller. Did you hear me? Stroller. Can I look at your baby? It's a dog. There's a dog in the stroller with baby clothes on, like a one of those little like fluffy dog rats in the. Like that's not what we're talking about here. Dogs were scavengers. They were unclean. If you have a dog stroller, I'm sorry if I offended you. Like, you need to be offended, though. I'm telling you, like, get rid of the stroller. <laughs> all right. You ever been on a plane? Somebody wheels one of those things down, the, bumping into seats and all that, like, dog stroller. Um, lost my train of thought. You ever put cats in strollers? I don't ever see a cat in a stroller. Um, so dogs, they're unclean. They're scavengers. 
This is a term of reproach that Jews consider Gentiles ignorant, godless, pagan idolaters. They were spiritual dogs. So what's going on? Is Jesus insulting her? So most scholars believe that what's happening here is Jesus is talking about a priority of mission. Notice he uses the word first here, that we, the, the bread is intended for the children first. The Messiah, throughout all of God's redemptive story, was sent first and foremost to God's people, to the Israelites, right? So, in essence, Jesus is pushing her in her faith here by saying, like, what right do you have to jump line? First and foremost, the Messiah was sent to Jews, to the Jewish people. What right do you have as a Gentile with all these obstacles, to jump line, to jump the queue. But this desperate mom, instead of being offended and running away and thinking that she's missed it, what does she do? She leans in. She leans in to what Jesus has to say. As a matter of fact, she's kind of witty here in her response, verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord. She acknowledges it, right? Yes, Lord. Yet, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So she acknowledges Israel's priority in God's redemptive plan, but she presses into the idea that God's plan is not restricted to Israel. This is important to Mark, because he's writing to Roman Gentiles, right? His primary audience is Gentiles. And so it's important when Mark records things like this to say God's provision is not restricted to a certain people, certain time. She, this desperate mom, trusts that God's provision is not limited to Israel. And she is right. Jesus came to break down these walls, to break down this wall of race in this instance. And we are a bunch of Gentiles sitting in a gathering today. That's good news for us. She trusts God. Even her expression here. The dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Display humility and faith. The humility and faith needed to enter God's kingdom. And we kind of understand this illustration if you've got a dog. Um, we have a dog that is, stays in our house, name's Toby. And we have restrictions on Toby, like while we're eating, um, he can't come in the kitchen and eat, be under the table. Drives me nuts. And so he has restrictions, like he's got to stay outside the kitchen. Now he pushes the limits every single time he's doing the Toby crawl of trying to get as close to the table as he can until I just give him the eye. I just turn and look at him. I kid you not, if you've been to my house, you've watched it unfold. I turn around and eat two seconds later. Give him the look. We don't want our dog under the table, but what happens is the end of the meal, he knows, he's suddenly sitting upright, his little floppy ears are all... And so he knows because there's something left over, he's going to get the hand flip or the thumb flip with some morsel, right? Some crumb from his master's 
table. But the children eat first, right? We're not like, Toby, come on over, pull up a seat, eat what you want off the table, and then we'll come in behind you and eat. It's not how it works. That might be how it works with the fluffy dog and the stroller. That's not how it works at my house. So Toby eats crumbs from the table after the children have eaten. And so what this lady is displaying, this desperate mom is displaying, is humility and faith, the humility and faith needed to enter into this kingdom that Jesus has been proclaiming. She's saying, I'm just wanting a crumb from the table of God's provision. Can I have just a small morsel of your mercy and grace? This past week or so, um, Toby has kind of a bad hip that he's had for years. And every once in a while, he'll jump wrong and hurt it. And then he'll walk around for two or three days with his foot up in the air uh, while he's waiting on the strength for it to, to put it back down. And he's been that way for like the last week. Um, and so I've noticed in this time where it's like, go rest and let your hip recover. Um, still, he'll three-leg it over to the table, right, hoping for a crumb. Like, dude, go rest, relax. I'll bring you something. You don't have to hobble around hoping for a crumb. It's a crumb. You're on three legs. It's a crumb. Shows desperation, right? She's desperate for the crumbs of God's mercy. And let me say to all of us quickly, desperate for crumbs of God's mercy is the proper attitude of our hearts to be able to feast at His table of goodness. We approach with a humble heart, desperate need for a crumb of grace. And Jesus says, let me lavish, let me lavish my grace upon you. But that attitude of the heart, that desperate attitude of the heart, just a morsel of your goodness and grace. So Jesus acknowledges her faith. Verse 29, he said to her, for this statement you may go your way. And the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So Jesus acknowledges the sincerity of her faith. Matthew tells us that Jesus says, great is your faith. And immediately her daughter is healed at home. She's still with Jesus. The daughter is healed at home. So think about the stark contrast here between the Pharisees last week and their oral traditions and this desolate mom who only has one option. Her only option is Jesus. Her only option is Jesus. Jesus is her only hope. And the good news of the gospel is Jesus is all she needs. Jesus is all she needs. He is her only only hope, and yet He's all she needs. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said about this passage, she took Jesus at His word, and Jesus treated her not as a dog, but as a child of Israel. So let me make just a little point here, and I want to point out a couple of things about this lady's faith. Um, This is the first person in Mark's gospel to hear and understand a parable. 
We've seen it again and again. The disciples are all scratching their heads every time Jesus says a parable like, I don't understand what you're talking about. This lady gets it. She gets it and she responds. She has ears to hear and eyes to see. And she teaches us some things, doesn't she? Let me just mention these quickly. Um, She teaches us about desperation. She teaches us about desperation. That in our most desperate moments, we come to Jesus. We do not run from Him. We do not flee from Him. That Jesus is enough. So whatever, wherever you're at in life today, whatever level of desperation you've got, about what's going on in your life, if it's in your relationship or in your parenting or in, in your finances or at work or whatever it is, wherever you're at and whatever level of desperation you are experiencing, I want you to hear me that you can bring it to Jesus and you will not be turned away. Desperation. She also teaches us about persistence. She didn't just turn away when Jesus pushes her. She does not just give up. As a matter of fact, in the original language, the idea here is she kept on. She kept on. She does not give up. Even when the obstacles seem insurmountable, she keeps going. She teaches us about faith, right? The persistence of faith. She also teaches us about humility. Now she falls at His feet in search of crumbs. She recognizes she's not worthy of what He's offering to give. And then she teaches us about faith. She teaches us about faith, about believing without even seeing. Her daughter is still at home. Will I trust what I can't even see? Will I believe in Him? All these parables that Jesus has been teaching all flow out of Mark chapter 4. The parable of the soils, right? And the receptive soil is the soil that had ears to hear and eyes to see. And this lady is an illustration of the receptive soil. She has the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And she teaches us a lesson about desperation and persistence and humility and faith. So Mark changes gears and he gives us a second episode beginning of verse 31. Jesus returns from the region of Tyre and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. So sometime later... A lot of scholars believe probably months later, um, Jesus is in the region of the Decapolis, the ten cities, again, a Gentile region. And this gives us a flashback to chapter 5, when Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee, uh, one of the walking on water episodes, and they end up in Decapolis. And remember, they are accosted by uh, the rude, nude dude, um, right, that came up, was the demoniac living in the graveyard, and he approaches and Jesus cast the demon out of him. And then Jesus gets back in the boat and goes back, right? He just went for that one incident. And then they are like, we don't want Jesus around, right? Remember, he cast the demons into the pigs. If I'm not making any connection to you, like go back and listen to the sermons in chapter 5 or just read chapter 5. And so they're like, Jesus, get out of here. We don't have anything to do with you. And so Jesus goes back. But before he leaves, the demoniac says, hey, I want to go with you. Jesus says, you're not going, you're going to stay here and proclaim what has been done. Guess what? He's been proclaiming what's been done. Jesus shows up and there's people waiting, right? We find Jesus back in this same area. And that first Gentile missionary, the demoniac, has spread the word. And so now this deaf man with a speech impediment is brought to Jesus. 
By the way, pause moment here. Our mission is to get hurting and broken people to Jesus. Not necessarily the walls of this church or whatever religious structure or system or program. Our job is to get hurting and broken people to Jesus. And that's what they're doing. They're bringing a broken, hurting person to Jesus. And look how Jesus responds here. uh, Verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, um, Epetha, which is to be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Mark emphasizes um, Jesus is full of compassion here. Uh, a couple of things about what Jesus does here. One, he takes him aside. Um, he, he gives individual attention to this guy. He's not a problem to be fixed. By the way, if we approach ministry those who are struggling in life or maybe at a place in life where they're kind of downcast or struggling with poverty or whatever it might be, if we approach ministry opportunities as a problem to be fixed, we've missed the heart of Jesus. All right? If the guy that you are handing $5 to outside of Target, if you're viewing that as a problem to be fixed, you're missing the heart of Jesus. Jesus sees value He honors this guy, right? He sees him not as a problem to be fixed, but as an individual to be loved and valued. He touches the untouchable. Now, there's some weird stuff going down here. Let's be honest. Jesus puts his fingers in the man's ears. What's that about? He spits and then touches his tongue. What's Jesus doing? This guy's death. Right? He has, a, at a minimum, a speech impediment if he's not completely mute, unable to speak. Jesus is going out of his way to demonstrate with his hands-on empathy for this man. And he's doing it in very culturally unacceptable ways. So he's doing it to make a point. The man feels, feels in his body, he feels the compassion of Jesus. Jesus is not just speaking words. He's full of compassion. He demonstrates his compassion. He is unaffected by uncleanness and impurity. Jesus makes the unclean clean. He drives away impurity. The contaminated are made whole by the touch of Jesus. And then we have this phrase that Mark uses that Jesus raises his eyes to heaven and he groans. He sighs deeply. Let me drill down on this word for a second. This word expresses a deep-seated emotion. It's only used of Jesus in the, the Gospels. It's a deep-seated emotion. Matter of fact, Paul uses a similar word in Romans chapter 8. When we did the Romans 8 series, you might remember this. In Romans 8, Paul depicts this deep groaning, similar word, a deep groaning of God's people and all of creation itself for God's final and complete restoration. Remember that language in Romans 8? where Paul says we groan and the creation itself groans for God to redeem and reconcile and restore the world. Similar word here, this idea of groaning. Matter of fact, in Romans 8 verse 26, Paul says that the Holy Spirit groans alongside of us for that final redemption. And here we find Jesus groaning. He's groaning in anticipation of a coming day when all creation will be finally and fully restored. 
What's going on here is Jesus empathizes. He understands. He relates. And He groans on our behalf for that final, complete restoration when God will make all things new. In the meantime, Jesus gives us a glimpse, doesn't He? He speaks a, a word, an Aramaic word, which is the language of those people. He's not speaking here in Hebrew. He speaks in Aramaic. He's in a Gentile region. And this Aramaic word, this single word is be opened. Be opened. And guess what? The deaf ears are opened immediately. His deaf ears are open. His speech impediment is instantaneously corrected because he makes all things new. The compassion and individual care of Jesus here for this man speaks to who Jesus is. That he's full of compassion and mercy and empathy and grace. He groans on our behalf. He anticipates the final day when all of creation will be restored. And in the meantime, listen, in the meantime, He intercedes for us. He groans on our behalf until that final day comes to completion. I was reading in Hebrews this week in chapter 7 where the writer says that Jesus sympathizes with our weakness because He was tempted like we are yet without sin. And for that reason, the writer of Hebrews says, for that reason, because Jesus sympathizes with us, for that reason, He says, hold fast to your confession. Draw near to His throne and you will find mercy and grace in our time of need. Because He's a Savior who empathizes. Verse 36 this same kind of mystery that we've seen throughout Mark's Gospel, Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more He charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Again, Jesus instructs the people like, be quiet, don't talk about my work, and once again, all over social media. They zealously, this time use the word zealous, they zealously, like they're tweeting it like crazy, right? All over Facebook. Do you hear what Jesus said today? Tag 100 people, right? Hashtag Jesus heals, right? So, like, zealously spreads the word. They speak zealously about it. Why is Jesus again and again saying, be quiet? Because they don't understand who He is. There's this kind of misdirected, messianic enthusiasm of the crowds. Like, we have a king who's going to heal and Build an earthly kingdom and overthrow the Romans. And Jesus is saying, you don't even get it. I am a different type of king. I'm not a king who has come out to set a political dynasty. My mission is cross-centered. I will die. I will be a sacrifice. But the more he tries to keep them quiet, the more they talk. In the end, this will come full circle in the final days of Jesus. It's the very crowds that He worked among and healed that will ultimately yell crucify Him because He's not the Messiah they were anticipating. This last verse has so much in it, verse 37, that I don't want us to miss. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, and look at these two statements, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So Mark because he is writing primarily to Roman Gentiles, 
He is not like Matthew and even Luke, who makes a lot of Old Testament references because he's writing primarily to Gentiles. Both of these sentences he uses here, though, are Old Testament ideas. The people respond in astonishment. The crowd responds in astonishment. And then Mark throws in these two Old Testament references. The first is Genesis 1, uh, verse 31. Uh, that is the creation account. And then at the end of the creation account, uh, remember what God says, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. It was very good. Here, he has done all things well. Emphasis on well, very well. So think about creation. Everything God made was very well, Jesus stands as the creator God who makes all things new and whole, right? What's happened in the life of this man? It's an act of creation. His deaf ears can now hear. His impeded tongue can now speak plainly. He makes all things new and whole. And then he declares those things Good. He leaves nothing to be desired. The invasion of God's kingdom on earth and the ministry of Jesus is marked by goodness and wholeness. So I want to remind you this morning, God does all things well. He is for you. He is good and gracious and kind. He restores and heals and redeems he is working all things for his glory and for our good even when we can't see it even when we can't understand it now let's be honest at times his revealed goodness is clear to us we can see it and understand it and we rejoice in his grace at other times his goodness is less evident to us we can't see it as plainly and yet we can trust knowing that He is the Creator God. And He is at work. And He is working all things ultimately for His glory and our good. Even when we can't see it, we can rest assured that when Jesus acts and works and creates, what He does is good. Very good. And then the second phrase. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This takes us back to what we read in the the doxology, the call to worship. Isaiah 35. Uh, we'll just recap verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Here's the phrase. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute sing for joy. And so this is a Isaiah 35 flashback. Isaiah 35 is the last chapter in the first part of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 35 comes after several chapters where Isaiah the prophet is just calling down God's judgment on all these pagan nations and also on the people of Israel. So that's been happening in Isaiah up till chapter 34. And then in 35, there's this hard stop right before 36, which is a brand new section in Isaiah, there's this hard stop in Isaiah 35, and the theme suddenly shifts from God's judgment 
to God's promise of that final and complete restoration of all of creation on the day of the Lord. That judgment, and we read it in the call to worship, will be replaced by joy. As a matter of fact, in verse 2 of Isaiah 35, the reference there is to the city, the region of Lebanon. Did you know that this area, Tyre, Sidon, and the Decapolis is modern-day Syria and Lebanon? Same geographical place. And so Isaiah makes a prophecy about a coming kingdom named Lebanon where the joy of the Lord will replace sorrow and judgment and deaf people will hear and mute people will speak. And here we have Jesus in Mark chapter 7, right? And he's standing before a deaf man and some of the speech impediment and he heals them. They can hear and their speech is clear. Remember Mark's emphasis in his narrative. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has invaded the earth. He opens blinded eyes. He unstops deaf ears. The lame leap like a deer. The tongue of the voiceless is set free and sings for joy. The ministry of Jesus inaugurates the arrival of God's kingdom on earth and this healing in Mark 7 in this region is a fulfillment of God's promises made centuries before by the prophet Isaiah. God is the, has sent the Messiah in Jesus and He is writing this redemptive story that starts in Genesis 1 and 2 where He creates and all things are good and it goes all the way to the end of the book in Revelation 21-22 where we have a new and restored creation. That's why you hear me stand and say like we're getting pushed back to Eden, right? At the end of all this that God is recreating a new creation And we're back to the garden at the end of the story. And all of this in between, we see this inauguration of God's kingdom. That as time is marching forward toward that final day when the kingdom of light will triumph once and for all over the kingdom of darkness and Jesus will rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords over a land that John writes in the book of Revelation, a land of no mores. No more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. A restoration of God's original creation. In the meantime, in the in-between, we are invited in our stories to feast at the table of His goodness. We're invited to humble ourselves, to believe, to see to hear and to taste the crumbs of His goodness and grace. So I ask you today, are you in need of a touch from Jesus? Come to Him. He is enough for you. For those who are invited to sit at His table, for those who humble themselves and come, here's what we discover. His grace is not provided in mere crumbs that fall from the table. 
His grace is provided in an overabundance. He lavishes His grace upon us. That's the kind of God we serve. That's the Savior that we seek. Crumbs of grace is an awesome idea, right? And crumbs of grace is the idea as we come to Him in desperation. It's how we come. We humble ourselves before Him. We, right? That's what this whole kingdom idea of Mark's gospel is. His rule and reign over your heart. And what that means is we humble ourselves. We turn from our way. We turn from our way of living. And we use Mark's language. We repent. We turn to Him. His rule. His reign. Right? We say, I am a desperate sinner that just is in need of crumbs of grace. Would you look upon me? Right? Would you show favor to me? Your goodness. Your grace. Like, how much we need this perspective in our life of just the crumbs of grace. I'm afraid sometimes, sometimes, we don't really understand how desperate we are. I'm afraid sometimes we don't really understand how much we need His grace because we don't really understand just how sinful we are and in desperate need of Him. So this idea of crumbs is kind of against our modern culture. They don't want crumbs, right? That seems like an insult. Because most of us kind of view this relationship with Jesus as kind of like Jesus is my buddy and my friend and I'm going to live a moral life for the most part and then somehow Jesus will get me over the edge in the end. We have failed to see the desperation of our spiritual need. That we are dead in our sins and lost without Christ outside of Him. And until we humble our hearts and see ourselves as people in need of a Savior. right? People in need of crumbs. And when we turn, when we turn to Him and we respond to His grace, we realize that it's not crumbs we're talking about. It is an overabundance of grace that is lavished upon us. Here's how I kind of see that fleshed out as we gather week in and week out. If we are people who are starving, right? Who are desperate for a piece of bread to live. Who are desperate for a crumb to survive. You know how you respond? None of us have probably ever been in that situation. But if we have been in that situation, you know how we would respond to a loaf of bread? Right? We would ravage it. We would consume it. We would be so thankful for it. It would be the best bread we've ever tasted. It wouldn't be, eh, I don't really like that kind of bread. I kind of prefer the whole wheat bread, right? No, we would, we would just be latched onto it. We'd lav- it would be the greatest thing that we've ever received. Because why? Because we were so desperately hungry and on the verge of death that this bread is what is going to literally save and rescue us from death. You see my analogy here? Sometimes the reason we fail to fully worship Him as He deserves, sometimes the the reasons we fail to lift our voices to Him and sing and 
of abundant, you know, in, in, in abandonment for who we are uh, is because we haven't really understood how desperate we are for His grace and that we are desperate sinners in need of grace and outside of His grace that we would be lost and we would be without Him and we would have no purpose and hope and we have failed to recognize our desperate need. That one simple crumb of grace has changed everything about my eternity. And if we really got that, right? If we really got that, how would we worship? How would we tell other people about the crumbs of grace? How desperately would we, we pursue, right? Pursue Jesus. Pursue those around me. Pursue my relationship with my kids and my spouse. Like, how desperate would we be to, to be with Jesus if we really understood, if we really understood how much we need crumbs of grace. Instead, we kind of stand around and mm, I don't really like this song. Did you know I would never have to ask a single person at City Church to sing to Jesus if we really understood this concept? Did you know we would have to multiply our services at City Church if we really understood this concept because we would be desperate, desperate for Jesus and desperate to tell people of His grace and goodness. Do you know we wouldn't be having to stand up and ask for kids volunteers and talk about giving and all the things that we have to do logistically in the life of a church if we really, if we really grasped, and I'm talking to Devin too, if we really grasped our desperate need for a crumb of grace. And then to discover it's not crumbs that are being brushed from the table. It is an overabundant lavishment of grace upon His children. So hear me today. Not to beat you up and not to guilt you into anything. Hear me to say that no matter where you're at in life, understand that He is good and He is gracious and He is inviting us, right, to the table, to come, see, partake, that our eyes might see and our ears might hear who He is. To fall in love, right? To have our hearts drawn toward this type of Savior, this type of King, this type of Jesus, who is full of mercy and grace and compassion. Come to Him today. Come to Him and taste and feast at His table of goodness. Let's bow our heads for prayer.